0: everyone and welcome to another episode of in a click today i have the pleasure of introducing you to dr michelle shira hagerman who works as assistant professor of educational technologies at the university of ottawa faculty of education Through her research, she explores the complexities of digital literacies, teaching and learning in context of Canadian schooling. At the University of Ottawa, she teaches a course for pre-service teachers on the integration of digital technologies in classrooms and graduate courses on digital literacies, technologies and learning. Michelle has a PhD in educational psychology and in educational technology from Michigan State University and is an Ontario certified teacher. She grew up on a farm in southwestern Ontario and misses the big open landscapes of Norfolk County, but feels very lucky with her husband, her two amazing daughters, and their Labrador retriever in Canada's capital city. You can learn more about Michelle's work at ms.sherahagerman.com and by following her on Twitter at ms.hagerman. So M S H A G E R M A N. And on Twitter, you can also find the link to her website. She's also really the one that planted the seed for this podcast. And so a big shout out to Michelle. I feel super honored to have her on the podcast today and to provide a space to share with you another boss lady in the tech industry who, for lack of a better word, is slaying it. I also briefly want to mention that this was the first podcast that I recorded uh, from a distance through Zoom, and so we actually had to redo the episodes. We've recorded this twice um, because uh, we couldn't really master the sound, and Michelle was super patient with me and (laughs) really held my hand throughout the process, uh, like she's done really since the moment that I've met her. And so I do have to apologize my audio skills are still developing, but the content is, of course, superb. Michelle was an absolutely wonderful guest, and I certainly hope that you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Michelle Hagerman. I was just hoping to start, just for the listeners who don't know, could you explain a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, of course, Jamili. So um, my name is Michelle Shira Hagerman. I'm an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of Ottawa, and uh, I specialize in educational technologies, uh, and my research really focuses on digital literacies. So I'm deeply interested in understanding how kids learn to read on the internet, do research on the internet, to use digital tools as part of their learning process. And I'm also really interested in understanding how to teach those skills. So that's kind of where my research sits, it's sort of at the intersections of technologies and learning and teaching, mm. um, and, and, and so far, my work has really focused on um, adolescents, so young adolescents, sort of, mm. I'd say, like, from 11 to 14, that's kind of been the, uh, the, the age of learner that has been most interesting uh, to me, um, and before that, I was a teacher. I was a classroom teacher. I taught for um, 10 years in, uh, in schools middle schools and high, and high schools, and uh, yeah, and I, I taught French as a second language before I did my PhD in Ed Psych and Ed Tech, so yeah.
0: Wow, oh, it must be so interesting to see all of the advancements in technology, like going from the 10 years teaching in an elementary school and high school setting, and then now teaching in higher education, just seeing yeah. those advancements, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: true, you know, the um, the the time of my career, I mean, I started teaching in 1996, mm. And, uh, you know, in those 23 years, it's been incredible to see how the spaces that we work in, the tools that we use to do our thinking um, have really shifted. I mean, I was lucky after having done a master's degree, actually, I did a master's degree where I was kind of trying to understand the role of um, threaded discussion boards um, and they're like their affordances for second language learning. So i done that work. And then in 2002, I went to work in a, uh, a private school, actually, an independent school for girls in Toronto, where they had a one to one laptop program. And they had like hardwired internet connections in every classroom. And so in about 2002, having done that master's degree, where I was already thinking about what are the interactions of computers and language and literacies. I then went to this context where kids were using laptops all the time in every class and the internet all the time in every class. And that's really where a lot of my my deep kind of interests and research questions emerged. So I was lucky um, to have that experience.
0: What were some of the most profound um, findings from that research? Oh, that's
1: such an interesting uh, question. (laughs) I actually found that the computers... You know, it's it's super interesting because at the time, right? I mean, computer. I like literally the word computers. At the time of that research, like it was like I, it was like that was the variable. Like, the computer, it wasn't even something more specific than that. But um, I found that there was virtually no difference in the treatment and control conditions. And at the time, that was very surprising. And I tried to be really, really systematic in the design of my work and. You know, this one group of kids that I was teaching had access to the computer labs and they were engaged in these online discussions about topics related to our course, using their second language, of course, and they were doing online research. And then I just provided the same content to the other kids, you know, in the control condition, but without using the computers, right? Mm -hmm. So they engaged in the same kinds of activities, but without computers And I found absolutely no difference on any of the measures Hmm. um, of like writing and reading comprehension and oral communication. I did find a slight difference in the kids' motivation in the treatment condition, but it wasn't really that big of an effect at all. Interesting. And so when I went into my master's um, defense, actually, one of the the professors on my committee said, it's too bad that you didn't find the right result. Hmm. And I looked Mm. at him and and I thought to myself at the time, well, this is the results, like, how can it not be the right result? Like, this is the result, right? These are the data that I have. So it's suggesting that maybe the computers aren't the be all and end all. So right. there must be something more complex going on here. Yes. And it was fascinating, because he was so convinced that, you know, my, my research must have been flawed. I mean, I'm sure it was flawed. But I don't think it was necessarily flawed for the reasons he thought it might have been.
0: Flawed, yeah, right? I, I imagine yeah. he had the assumption that the computer was this magic tool that would increase this, learning somehow. Yeah. This this is exactly
1: how I interpreted that, that comment. And uh, I mean, of course, when you get a null finding, and uh, I mean, as a researcher, I've had to be- become very used to finding like no nothing, or finding nothing, you know, and then trying to find another way mm-hmm. forward. It can be a bit disheartening, but I think that it's an important for me, it it was an important early finding because it's meant that I've never viewed computers and technologies as this great, you know, panacea, right? Mm. It's I've always brought this, yeah, but come on. It's what what really matters probably is what's happening around the technology, right? What really matters is probably the other uh, relationships, the trust, the feelings of belonging, mm-hmm. the agency that the kids are developing through this designed learning experience or, or the environment, right? It, it's, it's always about the human. It's mm-hmm. always about those interactions. And if the technologies can allow us to do things that aren't otherwise possible, okay, fine, then maybe that's a justifiable use for them. But yeah, that early work definitely <laughs> kind of showed me that it's really not about the technology.
0: Right. Now that things are shifting online, has your research shown anything kind of interesting about the way that students are now um, doing online research or interacting in online spaces? So,
1: Mm -hmm. huge and important question. Um, I think what, I mean, not not only my research, but I think what a lot of of colleagues' research is showing, um, students are, I shouldn't just say students, I mean, young people, right, are using a range of digital tools Outside of school and inside of school for lots of different purposes. What kids, what well, I think we probably understand now um, that 20 years ago we couldn't possibly have anticipated is that kids are really good at using their phones or the internet for particular purposes that align with, you know, what's important to them, you know, that align with their need as adolescents anyway, to socialize with one another and they're really great at finding and using um, information for entertainment or even creating things that are, you know, fun for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of conducting like online research, we do know that that's really difficult for mm-hmm. uh, young people. I mean, it's very difficult for any of us, right? right? So it's not just young people who struggle with some of those skills. In critical evaluation, we know, is very difficult. It's very hard for young people to identify what's a credible information source and what isn't necessarily a credible information source. And, and part of why it's hard is because the, um, the genre of sort of, let's say, internet text, I mean, there isn't a sing- single genre. Um, and, and all of these different sort of evolving types of text that kids are interacting with on the internet are always kind of shifting and changing. There are always these subtle nuances that are really hard to kind of keep up with. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard sometimes to identify really clear markers of credibility mm-hmm. um, or trustworthiness. So there's that. I mean, these environments are also designed. There's a huge corporate kind of mission driving the design of the spaces that we inhabit online. And so, you know, I always think like, billions and billions of dollars have been invested, right? Mm-hmm. Into driving particular types of behaviors and driving us to click and to be interested and to be you know, compelled to, mm-hmm. to behave in particular ways. And I do know that kids aren't necessarily critical of that or aware of how the, the platform itself, the design of that environment is actually driving their behavior. And so I do think that that's something we need to work really, really hard. to Equip kids to, to be more aware of
0: Absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, have you heard of um, deep fake videos?
1: Oh, I have,
0: yeah. Okay. And so like fake news was one avenue where we had to navigate what was real and what was false. And now it's it shifted to images and videos and it's even more complex. And I read this one article saying that as these deep fake videos continue to improve, um, so will our ability hopefully to be able to detect those kind of deep fake mm-hmm. videos through other apps that are designed, but at the same mm-hmm. time, they, there's also the argument as the um, kind of methods to detect these deep fakes improve, so will the actual deep fake videos. And so yeah. at, w- <laughs> at what point are we actually do we actually have the ability to detect this fake information on the internet? And then in addition to that, like what policies are in place for us to be able to protect ourselves in that case? Right.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: More and more complex. Exactly. Um, I'll, I'll. I could go to it right now. Actually, oh, okay. there is.
1: There is a really cool. Hold on. Let me just see if I can find it for you. Yeah, please. It's, um, the, yeah, the Global Disinformation Index (GDI). Okay. It's something to maybe check out, hmm. and it's an actual organization that is their sole purpose is to reveal or to develop strategies and even technologies that can help us to identify markers of disinformation.
0: Oh, incredible. Oh so,
1: yeah. It's um, I learned about it pretty recently. Okay. So it's, it's something to, to look at. And I think will be a very useful tool. Mm. And I think in, in schools, we need to be learning how to integrate those kinds of um, technological tools to help us like yeah. debunk or identify when a text or a piece of information has actually been designed to yeah. relate it's our different. perspectives, right?
0: Absolutely. I think that's probably one of the biggest gaps why educators aren't incorporating it into the classroom is that we don't know what we're doing either.
1: <laughs> well, it feels overwhelming. <laughs> it, it does. Overwhelming. I will say for so kindergarten through grade five or grade six teachers, Julie Coyro, Elizabeth Dobler, and Karen Palakis have just uh, published a new book, called um, From Curiosity to Deep Learning. Mm. And it it really is a beautiful resource that shows teachers how to teach um, what they call uh, personal digital inquiries. So how to conduct research on the internet that's driven by children's own questions and wonderings and how to kind of scaffold um, some of the strategies. And one of the strategies they really talk about is... um, the importance of modeling. Mm. So again, to your point about teachers not being sure, Mm. uh, it is, I think, important for us as teachers to practice just becoming aware of some of the strategies that we might just use tacitly. We may not be aware of how we're checking for trustworthiness or how we're kind of trying to kind of connect what we're reading with Uh, Maybe something else that we've read to corroborate that information, to sort of Mm -hmm. construct something of an integrated understanding that has a balance of perspectives. If we practice thinking maybe even aloud to ourselves while Mm -hmm. we're doing our own internet search, it it is a way to then think about how to do that for your students. Because, um, you know, in the absence of modeling, how are kids going to learn how to do it? So I think that's a really important strategy for teachers to use. Just, you know, peel back the layers, open up the black box and talk to your students about how you're trying to grapple with the same question.
0: Yeah, be transparent. Absolutely. Be
1: transparent about it. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot about also just the difference between traditional methods of conducting research. So collecting articles and books, right? Like for the most part, we know where that information is, we're, we're going to the same library if we're in the same school, but then conducting online research, the pathway to finding information for each student would vary, right? Depending on their interests or depending on kind of like what catches their attention and, you know, and so that's kind of an interesting thing too, because I think as, as educators, we have to understand that control isn't necessarily a possibility when conducting online research. Well, and actually, when you're conducting research on online research, (laughs) this is actually
1: a fundamental tension. Okay. Because, um, you know, there's a certain group of researchers who would say to truly understand the strategies and the processes that readers you know, composers, thinkers use while they're engaged in the online inquiry process. We need to control everything and mm. ensure that everyone has access to the same text, the same links, to the same navigational pathways.
0: Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah. Because otherwise
1: it's ecologically valid, but because of this very unique path, this navigational path that every learner will take, how do we hmm. understand what that process is if there's all of that variation in the research?
0: Oh, yes, of course. Right? <laughs> so, so this
1: is really, really hard. Yeah.
0: This is really, really hard. And in my dissertation, I
1: tried to be a person who did this online inquiry work in the open, like on the open internet. Yeah. And yeah, it was messy and it was really difficult um, to show to show kind of evidence of the strategies that the students were using. Um, but the approach I took was basically like if we do this enough times, mm-hmm. right? So I did it like five times, like every group <laughs> of kids that it five did this a different kind of online research activity on, you know, a set of prompts mm. um, over time, um, maybe we can start to understand a set of strategies that kind of are common. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, um, but that's, that's really, really hard and it's very labor intensive and it takes an incredible amount of planning. Mm. Um, It's a conundrum. It's a huge knot.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That that people are working on. (laughs) You know, I've read a lot about it, but you, I think this is the first time that it's made sense to me what, you know, why the research on it would be so difficult. And then again, why instruction in the classroom would be difficult because there's nothing kind of solidified in the research yet (laughs) in terms of practical application and that's yeah yeah, that's really difficult
1: (laughs) it's so difficult it's so difficult and you know sometimes how in life you get these little signals or
0: Hmm.
1: you're ready to hear or listen to certain perspectives and it and it helps you to to find the path forward I think that's something that I have to be more intentional about focusing my time on is creating sets of resources for teachers that truly do equip them with evidence-based strategies Mm -hmm. for teaching students to do research on the internet.
0: Um,
1: I've got a new project starting with a colleague in Finland, her name Mm. is Karita Keeley, uh, and she has a wonderful um, opportunity to develop and, and basically an online environment uh, that will be controlled. It will be totally designed to look like the internet, <laughs> okay. but everything about it, like we're in the process of designing the text and the prompts and the problems and everything about it is going to be intentionally designed and grounded in research. But I think that this is maybe the next phase in the work, right. Of trying to understand the complexities of uh, of online research, and then for me, most importantly, understanding how we teach kids to um, consider a balance of perspectives in this age of disinformation and this post-truth kind of era that we're in, I just think it's it's, it's one of the most important things that we can do in our systems of schooling is to help kids cope with the uh, the complexities of of the information landscapes that they have to navigate.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up. I think it's really important to start to ingrain this kind of thought process that there isn't necessarily a true or false online. And there because anyone can literally write an article online, oftentimes yeah. it's very much connected to their perspective or their personal lived experiences. And so yeah. understanding that there's a variety of very complex truths. <laughs> and so it isn't necessarily black and white, and it certainly isn't simple to identify this information and to kind of pocket them into these categories. And so identifying this complexity and then incorporating that inside the classroom, I think is so important.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think part of the challenge is to um, help kids to be comfortable with that uncertainty, Mm -hmm. right? It's a disposition. I think it's a fundamental disposition that maybe, you know, even 20 years ago, was a disposition that only people working in very complex environments Mm -hmm. needed to get really good at. Mm -hmm. You know, most of us could kind of maybe live in a world where we could feel some sense of certainty or control over certain things. And yet,
0: yeah, I mean... Things don't fit into neat categories anymore. Yeah. No,
1: no, that's right.
0: (laughs) And as humans, we don't like that. (laughs) No, it's
1: it's uncomfortable. Don't a lot of us don't like that. That's for sure. Um, And actually, that's why I'm also very interested in the potential of making and maker-based pedagogies Mm. as um, as as a way to kind of scaffold maybe some of these dispositions around kind of seeing potential solving complex problems, understanding, you know, how how things get made, and therefore how information gets made. Mm. And I think if we can provide kids with experiences where they're actually constructing physical things, and then help them to make the connection between the construction of, you know, like physical objects, and also the construction of knowledges, right, that they're not really that different in terms of how they get made, right? Mm -hmm. These are human processes. We construct knowledges, we construct understandings, we construct things. And I think if we can help kids to also see themselves as makers or as creators, maybe that's another way of supporting the development of that disposition of, of being okay with the complexity.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's such a great idea because in the in the act of actually creating something in in a digital format, the students can then see that, like, or any anyone can see that then their thoughts and their knowledge is ingrained in that product. Like they can see that's that transformation. Right. Exactly. Um, or, yeah, that's really, really cool. Interesting. Yeah, have yeah. you done any research on that to see how students' understandings change about the complexity of information online through that process? So I have not actually done the study
1: that asks that specific question, okay, okay. but I really, really hope to this year. Okay. Um, Oh, that's exciting. So um, with some colleagues, we've been doing some research at a school here in the Ottawa area for a couple of years, um, trying to sort of study the literacies practices that kids have been using during different kinds of maker activities. So Mm -hmm. one of the activities was um, that the kids built uh, musical instruments using recycled materials. They did some research online and then they built their instruments and then they created a, a written composition using google slides okay um so that was one project that we looked at that we co-designed with that uh, teachers and then the second year project uh was actually the creation of a digital video um which would be mm. super interesting to you and to yeah. research i'll have to share some of that with you please <laughs> um another time is super fascinating mm. and then this year we're um we still haven't sort of identified the project that we're going to be following closely. But in year four of this project, I would absolutely like to design sort of maybe even a, a microanalytic study where we're looking very, very closely at a project over even a short period of time and trying to understand how kids are grappling with that understanding of the relationship between the construction of something physical mm-hmm. and then the construction of a knowledge. Right. I would very much like to do that research. So yeah, maybe in the works. So we'll see. (laughs) I just, I just think it's such it's it feels like it's a very important question to be studied at this moment
0: i think so too i really do there's a, i think that's one of the largest issues right now is that disconnect between understanding that yeah all of our devices they're not simply they're not simply a device they were created by a human and every every algorithm every every piece of data was <sighs> informed by by some right. person and so dis- disentangling that is problematic because then we see these devices as as flawless right and we trust them without really thinking twice about it
1: Absolutely, really, and, really cool. And by the corporate mission,
0: right? Yeah, that's, yes. uh, <laughs>
1: that's paying for the development of that algorithm. <laughs> yeah, or,
0: exactly. Right.
1: There's so many layers oh, uh, to okay. unpack.
0: There really is. It's it's complicated. Yeah. I really want to chat now about what you're doing inside the classroom. So, from my understanding, you're also incorporating virtual reality. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So okay. this is something that um, I'm very new to as a Just, you know, like as a user of virtual reality, but also I'm really interested in the potential of VR uh, for teaching. Mm. And the work in the makerspace has helped me to almost like reorient my understandings of how learning happens. Oftentimes in schools, right, where we're very quick to move children along to the more abstract systems of the written word Mm. and we're very quick to sort of tell kids no no you know like the picture book for example where you're using your eyes to sort of construct understandings as well as the words maybe with your ears and and we're just really quick to kind of get them into like novels you know take away those images and I just I think that that's um there's lots of research to suggest this but it's it's a mistake i think to do that mm-hmm. and as i've watched students building objects in their maker based projects i can see how important like the interactions between the body and like our senses and the environment really is for learning mm-hmm. and i think that the embodied understandings that are possible through virtual reality mm-hmm. the sensory kind of experience through VR holds a lot of potential for learning. Yeah, and I mean, last year and the year before, um, I definitely have integrated VR into my Bachelor of Education classes for my Mm -hmm. pre-service teacher candidates. And um, it's been wonderful to watch them sort of explore the potentials as well. For many of them, it's the first time in a VR environment. Um, We took (laughs) a a field trip to a local (laughs) VR studio here in Ottawa. and everybody got say 15 minutes or so in a, in a VR kind of hexagon. And, uh, and then we did focus group, uh, conversations with them afterward to explore mm. yeah what did they think? And like, what was yeah. it like for them? And what possibilities do they see between the VR technology that they had experienced in their teaching practice? And mm. they would say a lot of really interesting things. They, um, They hadn't really understood the potential, for example, of taking like a virtual visit to a place that otherwise would be absolutely impossible for them, Mm -hmm. right? Like one student said like, oh my goodness, in virtual reality, I could take my students to the town where Shakespeare grew up, right? And so she was an English teacher and she was thinking about, wow, like I could actually take them in VR into...
0: To be fully immersed, yeah.
1: Like be fully immersed in the environment where Shakespeare himself had grown up. Yeah. And, you know, at that time, and you could just kind of see her kind of working on this (laughs) idea and coming to understand how profound um, an experience that might be for her students. Those are the kinds of things that I'm, yeah, very interested in understanding more about.
0: I had a gentleman named Frank Beam on the show on the first episode, and he was also saying that VR is an effective method for encouraging empathy in humans because you can like quite virtually, literally <laughs> walk in somebody else's shoes. And yes. so I see the potentials as very rich, and I'm I'm excited that you're. Introducing it in the classroom, and
1: as it turns out, the um, the woman who owns the uh, the studio is a graduate of the Bachelor of Education program. Oh no way. <laughs> She reached out to me initially and said, "Hey, I think your teacher candidates might be really interested in exploring this as a possible pedagogical tool." Yeah, and I said, uh, "Yeah, and so am I. <laughs> So let's let's see where this goes."
0: That's really really exciting, Michelle. Mm-hmm. I am now wondering, kind of what motivates you and inspires you to do what you do, but also in your lifetime, what you hope to see achieved in the field of educational technology?
1: Oh, what a wonderful question. I've (laughs) got to think about this. Well, I mean, I think I know already what Mm. motivates me and what drives me. Um, I mean, I do the work because I believe in the power of education. Mm. Um, I do the work because I can't imagine that there's there's more important work in the world than to um, truly understand what enables children and teachers to fulfill their you know their their potential.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it's really really about that for me. Um, I guess in my own life, I should say that. I mean, I grew up in a time too when. I mean, in a place where I didn't have a lot of examples of uh, of work that women did outside of education. To be honest, I was really inspired by my own teachers. I grew up in a farm, right, in southwestern Ontario, a <laughs> little little town, um, and it was a wonderful place to be. But I didn't see a lot of examples of of work that women were doing that sort of gave them a sense of agency and outside of education, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, women served all kinds of roles in supporting roles, right, on farms. But in terms of real leadership and creativity and innovation, I saw so much of that happening in schools. And so as a child, school just felt like this incredibly rich environment for me. I just, I loved being in that place. Mm -hmm. And it was definitely um, like that kind of social elevator, if you will, right? It has sort of, through education, it kind of has opened up for me opportunities that I couldn't have imagined having otherwise. So I think that's part of what drives me too, is sort of the wanting to create spaces where, I mean, all children, but girls in particular see paths for themselves that maybe go beyond what they possibly might've imagined. So that's, that's part of what's in my heart too. Mm. And increasingly, I'm so very aware of, like, the systemic injustices, right, that schools have also been party to.
0: Um,
1: And so part of what's driving me now is um, trying to find ways to create systems of schooling that are more just and equitable and inclusive. Um, And I think technologies can be part of that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so, I mean, VR is one example, right? Like, who, who could benefit from VR experiences in ways that wouldn't otherwise be possible, right? So right. these are some of the questions. What are the affordances of the internet for youth, for example, whose narratives or voices um, maybe aren't often heard, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm very interested in understanding that too.
0: Um,
1: what was the second part of your question? Now I'm forgetting.
0: No, that, <laughs> that was a really good response to the first one. You gave me all the feels. <laughs> Um, this is the second part of the question was in your lifetime what, oh, what you hope to see, see in the fields yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so well I mean there's a whole conversation that
1: we could have about educational technology, which mm-hmm. for me feels like kind of an empty idea to be yeah. honest you know a mentor of mine uh, Pune Mishra, Dr. Pune Mishra, who's now at Arizona State University, often told me, you know, there, there are no educational technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are technologies that exist and they're educational because teachers, mm. right, understand their affordances and are able to leverage certain capacities of within those technological environments or with those tools to support the learning that they know needs to happen, right? right? Yeah. And so um, I'm not, I'm not a champion for, I mean, even though it's my job title, like I really don't love that phrase, to mm-hmm. be honest. Mm-hmm. Um because I don't think that technologies necessarily have earned right? Yeah, that right yeah, that label, right? <laughs> yeah. They're they're not, they're educational because amazing creative, innovative teachers make them so right right? absolutely and oftentimes when um tools are marketed as educational we also know that there are all kinds of other kind of purposes right being served by those tools whether it's to gather information and data that can therefore be turned into kind of profit for Mm. the corporations developing them right I mean it's it's a very complicated um question for me Um, So what do I hope to see? I hope to see, honestly, schools, context of schooling where, yes, we can take advantage of um, digital tools, but in ways that ensure that everybody is learning, in ways that ensure that Um, Everyone has access, that everybody is developing the skills, the mindsets, the dispositions they need to thrive
0: Mm. in
1: their personal lives and in their careers, you know? So, um, yeah, that's what I hope for.
0: That's a really beautiful answer. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, This is why you're a mentor of mine, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. All right. And so now we move to the exciting part of the show. Okay. The (laughs) The rapid fire film of like... All oh, right, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. ready. Okay, so the most embarrassing song on my playlist.
1: Okay, well, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you were to go to my phone right now, you would find... Um, The soundtrack from Seussical the Musical, and I think that probably is actually the winner (laughs) of the most embarrassing, uh, maybe set of songs, the soundtrack from Cole
0: the Musical. Not just one song. (laughs) Not just
1: one song. There are many, many embarrassing (laughs) songs there.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Okay. Um, One thing that I do to maintain balance and wellness between my real and virtual life. Uh,
1: yeah. Yoga every Wednesday night.
0: Okay, good. Yeah. That's saved yeah. my life too. Yoga is a, mm-hmm. a real savior. I've also started going to the gym a couple years ago and that's been really, a really nice switch up. My new fitness phase. <laughs>
1: very good. I probably need to do a little more of the
0: gym, but uh, yeah. yeah yoga is good. I yeah. think yoga is Yeah. Um, if I had a magic power, it would be.
1: Oh, at like 100% the ability to like Like wrinkle my nose, like kind of move my nose, like a rabbit kind of, and like everything in my house would be tidy. All the laundry would be done, folded, put away. That would be my superpower. I like it. That's very practical
0: and very useful. <laughs> oh
1: my gosh. Yeah. It would it would really be
0: life-changing. <laughs> for sure.
1: Imagine all the research I could get done if I didn't have to like, you know, <laughs> clean up the kitchen every night.
0: Oh my God, absolutely. And all the time you could spend with your beautiful girls. That's right. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, and
1: I wouldn't be like nagging them. Like, "Put on your clothes. I mean, it would be so much better for everyone. A little
0: more peaceful in those. It would. Yeah. <laughs> it really would. Um, one aspect of my digital life uh, that I'd like to improve on.
1: Uh I would like to improve actually I'd like to well, so I have a, a website. um it has been through many, many iterations over time, but i I always feel like there's more that I could be doing there. um just in terms of um like disseminating my ideas in the moment, using my blog um to really get out there some of those ideas that are percolating or there are ideas in progress and I think that's a place where I should be doing more of that work um because oftentimes those are the things that kind of get traction right and these are the ideas that start to kind of develop into something more but I don't take the time yeah um to do that um and I should
0: yeah, well, finding the time is tough too, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I
1: mean, I managed something like a couple yeah. weeks ago um, that had been like kind of building in my mind through lots of different experiences, and so that was like, yeah, I did that thing, but I, I, and it felt great. So I need yeah. to do more.
0: Okay, good, good, good. It's nice to get started because then you realize the good feeling yeah. you get when you, yeah, you're yeah, all done exactly. Um, okay, so one person that you want to work with that you've not worked with before. And they could be dead or alive. Yeah.
1: (laughs) A person that I have not worked with. Oh, you know, I think I would have loved to work with um, Seymour Papert. I think I would have loved to have been just kind of present to hear his ways of thinking and, and knowing. Um. Yeah, that would be really cool. I'd also love to spend, like, even a lunch with uh, Dana Boyd. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. I would really love that. And then, I mean, there are so many other scholars whose yeah. work inspires me. I mean, I could, be, like, <laughs> this could be an entire podcast, but there's yeah. a list of people whose work has inspired me who I haven't yet had a chance to work with, but yeah, um, those are two people.
0: Yeah, it's true about Dana Boyd. She, you can tell she's cool just by the way that she writes, which is tough to do you know oh
1: yeah yeah and what I really really admire about her is how um you know how she really uses her voice and she's just fearless Mm -hmm. I think in some ways right just telling it like it is and I think for um for me as I continue to grow in my work as a researcher and a scholar um I, I just see the importance of that. Like mm-hmm. that's such a fundamental, again, disposition mm-hmm. or way of being in the world. Is just truly understanding that what you have to say is important and just being fearless and just going for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really that's... admire that about her work.
0: Yeah. I think that's great advice for everybody. I agree. Um, all right. And the last question is one thing that we can do to spread light online. Oh,
1: I think that we can amplify one another's voices, especially, you know, as women um, working in educational technologies, I think it's really, really important for us to to share what one another, like what we're doing and to affirm and to validate the work that others are doing um, wherever we can and in any space that we can.
0: Thank you so much, Michelle. Oh, um, really, thanks. This yeah. has been wonderful. Thanks it has been this wonderful. Opportunity to chat. Of course. I am. Um, I also just want to thank you so much for being such a great mentor. I, I tell everybody that I meet that you are one of my greatest mentors. Oh, and thank you. That you're like the perfect example of someone who lifts other women up and supports them. And you've been so patient with me and so supportive of my work. And majority of the things that I've learned are because of you. So thank you so, oh, so much. Thanks so much.
1: Well, the privilege has been mine. I mean, it's <laughs> just, it's such a delight to work with you and so, uh, well, thank you.